0: So it's a real honor to be here with you all. It's a little bit loud. Can we turn the volume down? Yeah, it's a real honor to be with you here, uh, particularly at the Aspen Ideas Festival. It has to be the only place in the world where you can be standing in line with Barbara Streisand for cupcakes and end up talking about cybersecurity. So it's a real neat. um, So what I'd like to do is talk to you about robotics and war. And for this, I'd like to pull back and tell you a little story. About a year and a half ago, the Robotics Trade Group, the Association for Unmanned Vehicles Systems International, held a meeting. Now this group, the Robotics Trade Group, had come a long way. It was formed in 1972 by a couple of Air Force officers and defense contractors in Dayton, Ohio, who had become enamored of the idea of flying robotic planes, drones. They held their first meeting in a small conference room in a motel. Now since then, since 1972, that robotics trade group has grown to over 1,500 member companies in 55 different countries. And its conferences now fill entire convention centers not small rooms at the Holiday Inn. In fact, if you're not doing anything in August and you wanna go to a less um, hospitable place in summertime, you can visit their national convention that'll be held at the Mandalay Bay uh, Casino in Vegas. Now, it was because of this headlong growth that the group was engaged in a little bit of institutional soul searching. They were trying to figure out what exactly is the story that they should be telling their own members about what they do And what is the story they should be telling the rest of the world about what they do? And they took this idea of narrative so seriously that the moderator for the conference wasn't a CEO, wasn't a scientist, wasn't a journalist like we have at the Ideas Festival here. They actually hired a professional storyteller. That is someone who could help them pull together decades of technologic and political developments into a single coherent narrative. As one of them put it, what we have to figure out is quote. Where have we come from? Where are we now? And where should we? And where do we want to go next? And I thought those questions was a really neat way of focusing in on what's going on with robotics and war today. And so what I'd like to do is walk you through that notion of story and what I think are some of the answers to those questions. Now, I'm not one for PowerPoint, and I've actually banned it from our own think tank. But we've got several folks in here from Washington, D.C. and I can see that they're going through withdrawal symptoms by not having enough PowerPoint. So what we're gonna do is actually a different kind of PowerPoint. It's not gonna be something that I speak to. It's actually just gonna play a series of pictures and videos of robots in action in places like Afghanistan today or robots already at the prototype stage. It's for a couple of reasons. One is to give you a visual part of the story. Every good story has visuals. The other part of it is, frankly, to prove that what we're talking about here isn't science fiction. This is all real. And then finally, it's just force you to, you know, when you get tired of looking at me, not to look down and, at your iPhone and type away, but actually to look up. You're going to miss something. But again, I'm not going to talk to it. It's just going to series of pictures and images. Okay, so let's pull back on all of this. The book that I did called Wired for War was about how there's something big going on in the story, the history of both technology, war, but maybe even humanity itself. The US military that went into Iraq in 2001 had a handful of drones, unmanned aerial systems, remotely piloted aircraft, whatever you want to call them. We had a handful in 2001, none of them armed. We now have over 7,500 in the U.S. military inventory. The invasion force that went on the ground had zero unmanned ground vehicles. We now have more than 12,000 in the U.S. military inventory. Last year, the U.S. Air Force trained more unmanned systems operators than it trained manned fighter plane pilots and manned bomber plane pilots put together. So there's something big going on here, but one of the things we need to remember when we're talking about these pack bots or when we're talking about the Predator drone that you may have heard of, we're actually talking about the Model t Ford. We're talking about the Wright Brothers Flyer when it comes to these technologies. We are at the horseless carriage stage of all this. Even in how we wrap our heads around what we call it, horseless carriage, unmanned systems. We can only think about what they're not rather than what they are and what they're becoming. Now it's important though that that's where we're at right now. Peering forward, I remember speaking with a US Air Force three-star general. And he said how it won't be thousands of robots in our next conflict, but quote, tens of thousands of robots. And it's not gonna be tens and thousands of these robots or even the prototype ones that you'll soon see because there's a rule in technology. It doesn't stop, it's always advancing. We've encapsulated this by something that we call Moore's Law. A lot of you may be familiar with. The idea that we've been able to pack more and more computing power into our microchips, into our computers, into our robots, such that they basically double in their power and capacity just about every 18 months. Now, I can give you a better illustration of Moore's Law and its impact on the military. How many of you have ever received from, say, your kids or your spouse, one of those Hallmark greeting cards that opens up and plays a little song? Just raise your hand okay, everybody. If you've ever held one of those cards in your hands, you held more computing power than the entire US Army had when my father served in it, And that one single card. And of course, technology, though, doesn't stop today. It continues to advance. So if Moore's Law holds true over the next 25 years, which is the range that we're supposed to be doing our strategic planning for, if Moore's Law holds true over the next 25 years, the way it's held true over the last 40 years, our technology, our computers, our robots, will be roughly a billion times more powerful than today. And I don't mean a billion in kind of the amorphous way we talk about it back in Washington, you know, big deal in budgets, billion dollars here, billion dollars there. I mean, literally, multiply their current power with a one and nine zeros behind it. Now, Moore's law is not a law of physics. It doesn't necessarily have to hold true. What if, for example, technology moves at a pace that's just one one one-thousandth that it has historically. That means our technology will be a mere million times more powerful than today. The point that I'm making here is the kind of things that we used to talk about only at science fiction conventions like Comic-Con are something that we're having to wrestle with in places like the Pentagon or in places like Aspen. What is it like to live, work, and fight through a robotics revolution? Now, I need to be very, very clear here. When I say robotics revolution, I'm not saying that the robots are going to revolt. I'm not saying that uh, you have to worry about the ex-governator coming to your door or the robo-apocalypse, which is a movie that Steven Spielberg is working on right now. I'm just saying this. There are technologies in history that come along and they're game changers. These are technologies like the printing press, the steam engine, the atomic bomb. And the important thing, what makes them game changers, is not just the capabilities they offer you, but the important questions that they force you to ask that you didn't imagine you'd be asking a generation earlier. And these questions are not just questions of what's possible that you didn't imagine was possible a generation earlier, but they're also questions of what's proper, issues of wrong that you didn't imagine you'd be asking yourself a generation earlier. The historic comparisons that people make to where we stand now in the robotics revolution, I think illustrate this point. When I went around interviewing people, I'd get different answers of where they thought we were comparatively. The scientists and the engineers, they tend to think that we're around uh, 1910, 1911 in the horseless carriage stage. 1910, 1911, Ford Motor Company selling just over 200 Model T Fords a year within 10 years, spurred on by the demands of war and changes in the economy, it's selling over a million of them a year. But why is the horseless carriage important in history? Is it because most of us now have garages rather than stables? It's bigger impacts that come out of that and everything from society to commerce to war. It's things like, for example, um, the impact that they've had on our architecture, our cities. There was no such thing as suburbia before the car. Impact on um, issues of social relationships. Teenagers could only court on their parents' front porch. The automobile gave them a new sense of freedom. They could go and date. It's geopolitical impacts, geoeconomic impacts. There's a group of desert nomads at the time who turned out to be lucky enough to live over what was considered a nuisance rather than a resource, this black sticky stuff that would come up from the earth. And that of course helped move them into a very powerful geoeconomic position. And of course that same technology is changing our planet itself, global climate change. And the point here is also that this new technology creates new questions, new challenges. So for example, before horseless carriages, you had no such thing as traffic laws. And when they came along, they said, well, we need something new. And the very first traffic laws entailed that someone was supposed to walk in front of a horseless carriage with a flag to let people know that they were coming. And when they got to an intersection, they were supposed to fire a flare into the sky to warn people they were about to turn. That made perfect sense in a world that moved only four or five miles per hour. It didn't make sense in a world revolutionized by horseless carriages. Now, other people make different comparisons. Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, naturally makes a comparison to the computers. And he says where robotics now stands is roughly equivalent to where the computer was in 1980. And he even says that if he was a young man right now, he would go into robotics rather than computers. And think about that comparison. Back in 1980, a computer, big bulky device, can only do a limited set of functions. Military is the main spender on the research of computers, The military is one of the dominant clients in the marketplace of computers. But very soon, computers get smaller. But we also figure out new functions for them. And they proliferate to such an extent that we stop calling them computers anymore. So for example, I drove here in a car that has over 100 computers in it. We don't call them computerized cars. Or for example, in my hotel room, there's this computer that we call a microwave oven that all of you have in your kitchen. And the point here is that same thing is starting to happen in robotics, not just in their shrinking size and form and proliferation, but even how we're stopping calling them robotics now. So, for example, if you've bought a new Ford, a new Toyota, a Volvo, they come equipped with technologies like parking assist or crash avoidance. Which are very nice ways of saying, we stupid humans are not good at parallel parking and we don't always look in our blind spots so the robotic systems in the car are taking that over for us. Now, of course, again, with computers, why are they important in history? Are they important because I don't have to memorize long division tables anymore? It's all of the changes that it's had on commerce, on relationships. Billions of dollars can be made in the stock market in a nanosecond. Billions of dollars can be lost in a nanosecond changing social relationships. I can become friends via social networking with someone in China that I've never met before. Of course, I might be concerned that my niece is becoming friends with someone that she's never met before. And of course, all the legal challenges that come out of that. I, for example, do some consulting with the FBI, and I pose the question to them, sort of a mean question, but what would J. Edgar Hoover think of the crime of identity theft? But we also have, of course, new domains of conflict that comes out of that. Cyber warfare that we've heard about at this um, ideas festival. Fighting in a place that literally didn't exist a generation ago. The last comparison that people make is to the atomic bomb. And this is from the cross between the scientists and the ethicists. And the atomic bomb around the research in nuclear physics around 1944-1945. And they think about this in two ways. One is that if you are a young graduate student today in the sciences, particularly in engineering or computer science, you are drawn towards the field of robotics and artificial intelligence because it's the cutting edge of the field. A lot like if you were a young graduate student back in the 1940s and you wanted to work on what was the cutting edge, you were drawn towards nuclear physics. That's where the action was at. That's where the funding was at. That's where the impact was at. But also, those same people that were drawn into nuclear physics later worried about the fact that they had created a genie that they couldn't put back in the bottle. And people in the robotics field worry about those comparisons as well. The underlying point that I'm making here is that in discussions of technology, we usually focus on the nuts and bolts of how the technology works. But what really matters is all of the ripple effects that it has on our world, all of the tough issues and questions that come out of it. And so for several years, I went around the world essentially interviewing anyone and everyone involved in the cross between robotics and war. What was it like to be a scientist working on these systems? What was it like to be a science fiction author and see your dreams become reality? And a lot of them were actually working with the Pentagon. What's it like for those in the military? Everything from the young 19-year-old flying a plane from Nevada that's actually over a rock What's it like for their squadron commander, all the way up to the generals that command them? What about the politicians? What do they think about this? The media, how is it reporting the story? Not just the American media, but also media in places like Pakistan or Lebanon. And then finally, the right and wrong of this, so interviews with everything from military lawyers to human rights activists. And what I'd like to do is sort of walk you through what I think are some of the more interesting stories or ripple effects that we've identified coming out from robotics. One of the major ripple effects coming out of this just simply changes in the field itself, in the market. We're seeing this in three ways. One is the size, shape, form of robotics is blossoming out. The first generation of these systems, they looked a lot like the manned systems that they were replacing. Even down to the planes, literally having the cockpits painted over. Now, as you're seeing from these pictures here, they're coming in all sorts of sizes, shapes, forms, mimicking nature wings, the length of football fields, to I was in an Air Force lab where I saw a system that could literally fit on top of a pencil. The second thing that's changing, though, is their intelligence and their autonomy is growing. And this is really a game-changer in war. And I'll give you sort of a a historic parallel. If you were back in World War II and you were comparing the famous B-17 bomber to the B-24 bomber, you would say, well, the B-24 bomber is newer and it flies faster, it flies further, it carries more bombs. That's the difference between the two. And so you could say the same thing about the MQ-1 Predator and its new replacement, the MQ-9 Reaper. The Reaper flies faster, it flies further, it carries more bombs. But there's a fundamental difference that we've never seen in the history of weapons in war before. The Reaper is smarter, it's more autonomous. It's not out there making its own decisions like the Terminator movies, but it can do things like take off and land on its own. Fly mission waypoints on its own. It has smart sensors that allow it to detect a disruption in the dirt from a mile overhead and tell the humans that that disruption in the dirt is what you guys call a footprint. And then backtrack where that footprint came from and say, here's the hideout that that insurgent was in. That's a big change when you pull back and think about weapons. But the final change that's happening is the user base and functionality of these systems is just exploding. Originally to fly them, to operate them, you had to be an expert. And I think about the comparisons here to computers. A lot of you will remember, you know, the first time you used computers, when I first used computers, you had to learn, you had to learn this strange language. For me, it was called BASIC. Other people learned other languages, Fortran, DOS, etc. It's like a foreign language. My three-year-old son can operate his own iPad and find his favorite videos of garbage trucks whenever he wants. And he doesn't even know how to type yet. And it's not that the system is simpler. It's actually that it's simpler to use. It's more complex underneath it. And that change is playing out in the user field for robotics. So to first have to fly these systems, you had to be a trained pilot. Now there is an iPhone app to fly them. Um, And so what that is leading to is a cross between imagination, innovation, and profit-seeking. And so we're seeing robotics going into all sorts of different areas outside war. Everything from police, law enforcement usages, to nurses' aides, to environmental survey, cargo, firefighting, disaster response, you name it. And a big game-changer that's looming inside the US is 2015 where Congress has legislated, basically, that the FAA has to open up the airspace to these systems. And I was talking with the vice president of a leading robotics company. They um, make small drones that they sell to the US military. And things are good for them. He said, we have a great client. One client, the US military. But looking forward, they think when this legal change happens, they'll have at least 21,000 new clients. And what they were doing is they were counting all the state and local law enforcement departments, police departments out there, that either can't afford their own police helicopters or have them and they're really expensive and their small drone systems they think are going to be competitive against them. Basically the flight hour comparison for a police helicopter is as much as thousand dollars an hour compared to under hundred dollars an hour for the drone. And they think just from a, um, a budget standpoint a lot of police departments are going to look at it that way. But this of course leads to more ripple effects. When you open up new markets and customers, people using them for everything from war to firefighting to police to, um, in Australia, they use them to help hunt great white sharks, um, it leads to another series of questions. While this is a robotic revolution, as you've seen from these pictures here, it's not just an American revolution. There's a rule in technology and in war. There's no such thing as a permanent first mover advantage so quick show of hands here how many people in this room have ever used a commodore computer how many of you still use your commodore computer same phenomena happens in war the british were the first ones to use the tank they actually got the idea from an hg Wells short story called land ironclads winston churchill reads it thinks that would be great for us to use in, in that trench warfare in World War I, but we can't call them t- land ironclads, because that'll give the secret out. That'll be too easy to figure out what we're building. So we'll call them water tank carriers instead. Now, of course, if you know your history, the British may have been the first to use the tank. The Germans, though, by the time World War II rolls around, are the ones who figured out how to use the tank better. And so the challenge for us is that the same thing's happening in robotics. The U.S. is definitely a leading player, particularly in military robotics. And we should be. We spend about 48 cents of every dollar spent on the military out there in the world. However, there are over 50 other countries also now building, buying, and using military robotics. And they range from countries like Great Britain, France, Israel, Germany, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, China, you name it. China, for example, has gone um, in the last five years from having no unmanned aerial systems to, at their last military trade show, displaying 25 different models. And their spending on it, at least as estimated by the Frost & Sullivan Consulting Company, in the next 10 years is going to go up not 10%, not 100%, but see 1,000% growth. Now, one of the things that comes out of that is another question, another ripple effect the strange cross between national security and intellectual property rights. That is, if this is a technology that's comparable to the rise of the automobile, the rise of computers, the atomic bomb and nuclear physics, we're likely to see attempts to steal secrets in it for both economic but also political reasons. And we're seeing the same thing play out here. Um, One of my favorite examples was uh, talking to a sales guy for a ground robotics maker. And he was in charge of the East Asian market. And he went out to a trade show in um, the Pacific. And he was looking at the Malaysian army's display. And they had one of his robots there. And he got really angry. And he calls back the home office. And he says, I'm the guy in charge of the East Asian market. Who's been selling in my turf? And they said, we've never sold to them. It was a Chinese knockoff of their ground robot. And we're seeing this play out at a meta level in cybersecurity issues. Uh, I was visiting a major defense contractor two years ago, and they knew of five different advanced persistent threat campaigns that is, five different organized, sort of Oceans 11 like equivalents of people trying to steal secrets from them. I went back a couple months ago, and they're aware of 32 campaigns against them. That's the groups they're aware of. So the growth is huge. The final example of this concern um, played out a couple years ago where it turned out that insurgents in Iraq were listening in, watching the video feed from our predator systems. They weren't able to control the systems. It was more like a um, criminal, a bank robber, tapping into the police radio network, which is why the police encrypt it. The unfortunate problem is that we are often our own worst enemies in this technology. The reason why the insurgents were able to pull it off was three things coming together. The first is no one had planned to be going from 0 to 7,000 of these systems. And so the communications network was cobbled together and security was often set by the wayside. The second was no one factored in how fast technology could change. They were aware of the vulnerability in the comms network um, as far back as uh, 1999. The difference was in 99, to tap into the network, you needed a huge device and it was highly complex. By 2009, when this played out, you needed a piece of $29 software that college kids had invented to illegally download movies from the internet. And they were buying, the insurgents were getting it off of a Russian website. And finally, arrogance. Um, as one of the U.S. uh, Air Force officers in charge of the program put it, um, we knew about the potential security breach, but, quote, we didn't think anyone in the Middle East would be able to figure it out. Again, this was just listening in on these systems. It was not controlling the systems. But as we move forward, we move into an era of what I call battles of persuasion, where the goal is not merely to destroy the system, but potentially co-op the system, take over the system, persuade it to do something that its original owner wouldn't have wanted it to do. Again, something not possible before in war, whether you're talking about the idea, how could you ever persuade an arrow to change in mid-flight, to you couldn't persuade a human pilot in a jet fighter, but you can persuade a system. System recode all American jets as Syrian jets, etc. But as we've heard about at the Ideas Festival, maybe there's just other things to be um, worrying about. Maybe it's just the question of where we're headed as a nation in our economy and education. So what do you think the next 20 years will bode for America's manufacturing economy? Do you think it's gonna get much better? Do you think it's gonna stay the same? Or do you think it's gonna get worse? What about the next 20 years in America's science? in mathematics, education. You think we're gonna get a lot better? You think we're gonna stay the same? Or you think we're gonna get worse? However you answered those questions is probably the best indicator of where we're gonna head in this field on a global competitiveness state. Another way of putting it is, what does it mean for US security that the number of students who graduated with a degree in information technology or electronic engineering is slightly less than we graduated in 1986? but that we've had a 500% increase in recreation, leisure, and fitness studies. Now, another issue that comes out of this is open sourcing. We've focused in on the states, but this technology is one that multiple actors can tap into, just like open source software. It's not just the big boys that control it anymore. Um, So for example, I advise on the Call of Duty video game series. And for that, we conceived of a armed quadcopter system. And it's, it'll be in the game coming out in a couple months. You know, Be sure to buy it for your kids. Um, but what was interesting is in the marketing for the game, we decided, wouldn't it be neat if we could build a working version of that armed quadcopter? And we created a viral video that showed the working version of the armed quadcopter. A Pentagon office saw the commercial and said, hold it that video game company has figured out how to build a better system than every other American tactical robotic system today. I'm part of the defense industrial complex now in a strange way. And what I'm getting at here is that this technology, it's not like an aircraft carrier, and this is one way that it's not like an atomic bomb. It's not something that you require a huge defense industrial complex to utilize. So if you, for example, You know, a group like Hezbollah could not build its own aircraft carrier. And even if you parked an aircraft carrier off Lebanon and said, here's the keys, they wouldn't be able to utilize it effectively. Hezbollah has, though, already operated robotic systems. And its war a couple years ago with Israel, even though it's not a state military, it still flew drones against Israel, and Israel flew drones against it. And um, this goes into all sorts of other actors. For example, my favorite vote for... uh, innovator of the year last year um, wasn't uh, someone from Apple or Google. It was a group of jewelry thieves in Taiwan who using robotic, tiny robotic helicopters and pinhole cameras carried out a $4 million jewelry heist. Sounds like again, a Hollywood movie, but it's already been done. And so what the impact of this is um, we're seeing the true empowerment of individuals and small groups compared to the power of the state. So, in World War II, Hitler's Air Force, the Luftwaffe, could not strike the United States, could not reach across the Atlantic. Three years ago, a 77-year-old blind man built his own drone that flew itself across the Atlantic. So he had greater reach than the entire Luftwaffe. And of course, this impacts into areas like potential terrorism. You don't have to be suicidal to play in this game. Uh, There was an individual in Boston a couple months ago, actually in October, who wanted to uh, fly a plane into the Pentagon. His plan wasn't that he would hijack a plane, his plan was that he would get a drone, load it up with explosives, and then fly it in the Pentagon. He was able to get the drone. He made the fortunate mistake of asking an FBI informant, Where do I get C4 explosives from? So we are in a world where a would be terrorist found it easier get to get the drone than the centuries-old technology of explosives. Now, there's other ripple effects that come out of this, big ones to worry about. Um, One is our politics. And we were talking about this in another session, and it's come up again and again at Aspen Ideas Festival. The idea of what is robotics doing to the relationship between the American public and its wars. In my mind, robotics takes certain trends that are happening in our body politic maybe to their final logical ending point. Think about it this way when it comes to the linkages. We don't have a draft anymore. The last college graduating class to worry about being drafted just celebrated its 30th reunion. We don't declare war anymore. The last time the US Congress actually declared war was 1942 against the minor Axis powers like Bulgaria and Hungary that we forgot to include in their original day after Pearl Harbor declaration of war. Seventy years since we've actually declared war. We don't buy war bonds or pay war taxes anymore. During World War II, the American public bought 185 billion dollars worth of war bonds. If you raised two million dollars worth of war bonds, you got to name your own ship. In the last ten years of war, we've bought zero war bonds, and the richest 4%, i.e. the Aspen attendees, got tax breaks. The point that I'm making here is that now we have those trends already in play, and now we have a technology that takes out the last factor. The political consequences of sending people into harm's way is literally hitting the ground. The barriers to war they were already lowering, the technology takes them to the ground. And we're seeing this. is not just political theory I'm talking about here. We're seeing this, for example, in the not-so-covert war, as I call it, in Pakistan, where we have carried out 334 airstrikes using unmanned systems into Pakistan over the last several years. That's roughly eight times the size of the Kosovo War 10 years ago in terms of targets sets hit. And we didn't have a vote on it, yes or no. It's also hitting overt operations. So, for example... Um, Uh, In Libya, we had the reaction there to a potential massacre by a dictator of people in a a city and so we deployed forces to stop that massacre and then as the operation shifted to aiding a group of insurgents and regime change, we said no, we're pulling back from this, we're not going to be in an active role, the rest of NATO is going to take this over. And so when we got to the 60-day mark where, under the War Powers Resolution, Congress is supposed to vote yay or nay, or we pull out, under the law, this is one of those post-Vietnam laws, the executive branch said to Congress, you don't have to do this, you don't have to vote yay or nay, because, quote, U.S. operations do not involve the presence of U.S. ground troops, U.S. casualties, or a serious threat thereof. The operations after that mark, however, did involve something we used to think about as being in war, blowing things up, a lot of them. After that mark, we carried out 145 airstrikes using unmanned systems and did most of the targeting for all of NATO's manned airstrikes, including all the way to the very last airstrike that got Gaddafi. Now, the point that I'm making here is that war and how we looked at it used to involve two things together, the kinetic side, the blowing things up side, but also the side of sending people into harm's way. That's what it meant to go to war. And the technology is allowing us to disentangle those two parts, and our laws really haven't caught up to it. And notice I'm not saying these are good or these are bad operations. I'm just saying something that we would have previously considered war, we, everything from the policy field, the media, to those of us in this room, aren't treating as war anymore. Now, the impact of this is also on areas like our own psychology. How is this hitting the war of ideas? That is, what is the story, what is the message that we think we are sending when we utilize these technologies versus what is the message that is being received on the other end of these technologies? So I wanted to find this out. So, for example, I remember doing an interview with a leading State Department official, and he said, quote, that our unmaning of war plays to our strength. The thing that scares people is our technology. But, of course, you have a flip side to that. I was um, interviewing the leading newspaper editor in uh, Lebanon, um, and he described, and actually during the interview, a drone buzzed overhead. And he said, this is, just a, this is his quote, just another sign of the cold-hearted, cruel Israelis and Americans We're also cowards because they send out machines to fight us. They don't want to fight us like real men, but they're afraid to fight. I don't think that's true, but that's his perception. And that perception matters. It matters in lots of different ways. For example, the would-be Times Square bomber got into the game of terrorism, at least by his own admission, over his anger over the drone strikes that we were carrying out to try and stop terrorism big questions to figure out here. Essentially, our challenge is how is a technology, how is a tactic fitting into our overall strategy, our long-term end game? How do we get out of a game of whack-a-mole when it comes to terrorist leaders? But of course, this is impacting other aspects such as the experience of going to war, not in terms of the nation, but for the individual. For 5,000 years, the idea of going to war has meant going to a place of such danger that you might never see your family again. That's a shared experience of everything from the ancient Greeks going to fight Troy to my grandfather going to fight the Japanese in the Pacific in World War II. That idea of going to war, going to a place of such danger you might never see your family. This is how a, um, the first Predator Squadron commander described what it was like to fight insurgents in Iraq and Afghanistan while never leaving Nevada. Quote, you are going to war for 12 hours shooting weapons at targets, directing kills on enemy combatants. And then you get in the car and you drive home. And within 20 minutes, you're sitting at the dinner table talking to your kids about their homework. That is a fundamentally different experience of going to war. And we need to be clear here. It's not an easy experience. It's not a video game experience. It's not an antiseptic experience, which are some of the terminologies I've heard at panels um, at Aspen. It's a tough experience. Everything from the commander's job to how it impacts the psychology of these operators. In fact, the levels of stress and burnout, in some cases, are as high as for ground units physically in Afghanistan. But another impact of this is the demographics of war. Who can do what in war? Perhaps my favorite story in the book is about this young 19-year-old man who was a high school dropout. And his dad was really disappointed in him. So he wanted to make his dad proud of him again. So he volunteered to join the U.S. Army. The recruiting officer asked him, what would you like to specialize in, son? He said, I'd like to be a helicopter mechanic. That would be really cool. And the officer looked at his high school transcript and said, I'm sorry, son, you failed your English literature class, which means you're not qualified under Army rules to be a helicopter mechanic. Would you like to be an unmanned aerial systems operator instead? He turned out to be incredible at it. He turned out to be a natural, so to speak. It wasn't that he was a true natural. It was that he spent his entire life training for just this kind of exercise. And he turned out to be so good that after his first deployment, they promoted him. They made him a specialist. Now, do we have anyone here that's recently served in the Army that can say, or in the military, about what a specialist gets paid? Not too much. Not too much. A little over $20,000 a year. This is not a big promotion. But besides that promotion, they then made him an instructor in the pilot training academy. It's a really cool story from one perspective. Because of this technology, this young man found himself, making his dad proud of him again, serving his nation well. I told the story at the Air Force Association National Convention in a speech just like this. They did not like the story. You have a teenaged high school dropout enlisted men in the army who's not just a pilot instructor right now, but has helped take out more enemy targets than every single F-22 fighter jet pilot put together. They look at him with the same mix of kind of dismay and disdain and fear that the knights had when they looked at the peasants with guns. What are you going to do? Hold it, what are you going to do? And of course, this demographic change, who can do what in war, is not just happening outside, but also it's changing ourselves. As you're seeing here, and we've seen it at a couple of the panels here at Aspen, we're starting to put technology into our bodies, on our bodies, and it's changing us. So one of the more powerful um, stories that come out of this technology is that more than 400 American soldiers who've unfortunately lost arms or legs due to these IEDs, due to roadside bombs in places like Iraq or Afghanistan, and had them replaced with robotic prosthetics that are so good that over 400 have gone back to serve in their combat units with a prosthetic, with a prosthetic arm or leg. The test to prove that they can do it is equivalent to the Ironman triathlon. But of course, we don't stop at replacement. Much of the funding now is on what we call enhancement getting bigger, better, faster, stronger. And that raises a whole new series of legal and political and ethical concerns to figure out. It's basically a lot of the issues that we'll hear talked about in the Olympics, hitting warfare and regular life. So much of what you've been hearing from me is that there's always two sides to a technologic revolution. Moore's law is playing out, but Murphy's law isn't disappearing. We're getting science fiction-like capabilities but science fiction-like riddles to answer. And Sometimes people think that these are simple. I remember talking with a um, senior executive at a ground robotics maker and he said, no, 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 these are just oops moments. When things don't work out with your robot, it's just an oops moment. You do a product recall and you fix it. So, What are examples of oops moments so far in robotics and war? Sometimes they're kind of funny, like when they were field testing a machine gun armed ground robot and it went, quote, squirrely. It started spinning in a circle and pointed its weapon system at the VIP stand of people there to watch it. They were very glad that there were no bullets in the 50 caliber machine gun at the time. Other times these oops moments can be tragic. Like a couple years ago in South Africa, an automated 35mm anti-aircraft cannon um, essentially uh, had a, as the report put it, Software glitch. The software glitch, and we've all suffered from those. For example, I fly a lot. A couple years ago, um, one software glitch in a computer in Atlanta shut down, the, the computer at the FAA headquarters in Atlanta shut down half the national airspace. So in this case, the software glitch caused the weapon system during a training exercise not to fire in the sky like it was supposed to, but to level and fire in a circle. It killed nine soldiers before it ran out of ammunition. And the point I'm making with these oops moments is not that they happen, but imagine you're the young officer, the young lawyer asked to investigate it, to figure out who to hold accountable. What system of laws would you turn to? In war, our prevailing legal codes date from the same year that the 45 RPM vinyl record player was invented. And so it's a lot to ask of a legal code from that era to catch up to 21st century technology like this. I remember um, asking these questions at Human Rights Watch, and one of their lead officials really said, in fact, um, the prime directive from Star Trek would be more useful to us today. That may be true, but we can't call Captain Kirk in a real court of law, and this technology is real. So I'm gonna end here. Bottom line, it sounds like I've been talking about the future, but notice how every story I told you Every picture you saw is from the present reality of both technology and war and politics today. And so it poses a question to us, a lot like what people dealt with with horseless carriages or atomic bombs. Are we going to let the fact that this looks like science fiction, feels like science fiction, keep us in denial that this is our reality? Thank you. So we got some time left. Um, if you, anyone who wants to ask a question, just wait for the mic to to come around and stand up and please introduce yourself. So he, we got the first hand up was right here. I'm just curious uh, what the percentage of research and development uh, that's going into robotics is military and which is uh, a private private sector. It's a great question, and I've never seen an exact breakdown of it by percentage, and one of the reasons that it's really hard to figure that out is that the vast majority of basic and applied research in this space comes from the military, particularly from agencies like DARPA and Office of Naval Research, but it's often for mixed areas, and this really points to an interesting um, ethical question that a lot of the scientists are wrestling with. So. Uh, give you an illustration um, this one scientist that I was talking about he said I've, I've got nothing to do with war I don't work on war robots this is not my area of concern in fact what I'm building is a baseball playing robot I said okay who's your funder who's funding that research he was in a university he said office of Naval research and you're like okay why are they interested in that? It's not because they want you know Naval Academy baseball team to you know, beat army with robotic players. It's because the same concepts of a robot that can do things like react to the trajectory of an incoming ball or projectile and move to that place before it lands may have some application in war. Or a robot that can operate under a very complex system of rules and still carry out a set of functions, maybe useful in baseball, maybe useful in war. And so this is one of the real issues within the um, roboticist field is, where do they come down on this question of DOD funding? And you have two, um, you have sort of three groups. And, and to be frank, I have a huge amount of respect for two of them and not one. Some are the folks that say, I'm very proud of what I do. My work is saving soldiers' lives out there in um, Afghanistan or the like. And, they, and you saw the picture of like of a postcard that one of the manufacturers displays. This is what we're so proud of. And then you have another group, the Refusniks, basically people who say, "I don't want to be part of this, and I won't accept any DoD money, even at the start of it." The problem is they're both around. You know, if I would put percentages, five to ten percent. And there's this vast group in the middle that kind of says, yeah, I'm working on it, but I'm really not dealing in war. And I think part of it is also just frankly, the, um, and this is again what we've seen at this festival, is that while we want to stovepipe issues in fields, they quickly cross over. So one of the roboticists put it to me this way. He said, I can't really think about ethics because I don't own a philosopher's hat, so I'm not even going to put that hat on problem is then is you've li- you're already made an ethical decision, even though you haven't thought about it that way. Um, right there. Uh, in the, the white shirt and the glasses. Yeah. I, I agree with you very much. It, it seems like you're a, on a like a 20-year time frame. Could you maybe uh, tell the audience a little bit about Drexler's work? Because when you jump from the robotics to the nanoscale, that's going to uh, you know, bring up a lot more issues? So, um, Drexler, was, there's two things we can bring into this. One is uh, some of the game-changing work in nanotechnology, and then the other is a bigger discussion about the singularity, uh, which his work fed into. So, I, I'm working on a project that we call Next Tech, and the idea of it is to try and figure out, okay, this seemed really fascinating, this seemed game-changing, But all of these technologies, you saw the pictures of them. What's the next? So what's the, you know, the Predator drone, it first started flying back in the early 90s. Actually, um, the Predator was originally called Amber. It was um, fortunate for the company that they came up with a much better sounding name for war. You can imagine, you know, the military not being excited to buy Amber. Um, Okay, so what's the equivalent to that? What are some of those things that are just starting out right now? These are fields that we think, and we did interviews of everything from military lab directors to visionaries at places like Google or Apple, to venture capitalists, the people putting money into fields. And some of the game changers that they thought were at that space were directed energy, artificial intelligence, all the work in genetics and bio, and nanotechnology was the other. And the big shift in nano is where it moves. And nano is things operating, things at a molecular level. Things, the big changes as it shifts from nanotech to nanorobotics. We already, a lot of us have nanotech in our lives. For example, um, if you have ever worn a pair of Dockers, um, you know uh, stain shielded, don't wrinkle pants. Or if you've ever played tennis with a Dunlop tennis ball, you've used nanotechnology. Robotics is not just tools like a hammer, but Robotic, that is, it's machinery operating at that level. And we have seen the creation of nanomotors, but not all the other parts of a nano actual robot. But people think that's looming. And it, the experts in the field get into fierce arguments about when they think that's actually going to happen. Um, and they, they argue about it everything from it's going to happen a couple years from now to five, ten years from now, but they're very, very uh, optimistic about that happening. And as the, the questioner was putting it, that's a really true game changer because then when you can build at a nano level, the first thing you do is build something else that can build at a nano level and then suddenly you're able to enter what science fiction folks have called the diamond age where diamonds are worthless because essentially when you're operating at a molecular level, it doesn't matter if you're building a diamond or a piece of charcoal, you just need that carbon. So it's a big, big change. Of course, there's a lot of, you know, concerns about runaway, nano, how do you keep it set, et cetera, et cetera. What, historically, we hit is a moment that another individual that this work is fed into, and a lot of you may have heard of this, the idea of the singularity, the idea that you hit this moment where you can't predict what happens next, where you have technology that's so advanced that we're like the monks being shown a printing press, and saying, hey monk, how is the, how is the world going to look like now that this thing exists? And the monk would say, well, uh, you know, they might use it to better illustrate Bibles. I don't know. No one back then would be able to predict things like mass literacy, democracy, the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, sports illustrated swimsuit issues, you name it. No one could predict all those things that would come out of that game-changing technology like the printing press and so they feel that we're at the cusp of this where people like you and I won't be able to predict what comes next my point is I think we're already at that moment without nanotechnology I think we've already you know we don't need sentient robots we don't need microscopic level to see that it's already changing our wars our politics what's possible and not possible in commerce the need for new laws etc um, chance to hear in the front it, it, yeah stand up and go ahead and, yeah Thank you, Zach McDonald, former former Army Infantry Sergeant. Uh, I am, quite frankly, very excited about drones. Anything that can save the lives of American soldiers and enhance their ability to kill the enemy, I think is a positive thing. One concern I do have, though, is with the the emergence of unmanned uh, unmanned vehicles, either ground based or aerial, that are launched by individual infantrymen rather than. uav specialists such as the upcoming switchblade drone Mm -hmm. i think that these hold a lot of promise but at the same time i remember an army private launching a raven which is a sort of unmanned aerial vehicle straight into a hesco barrier and i'm concerned about individual soldiers who are not uav specialists receiving the proper training to utilize these technologies it's a great question and it hits one of the, the big important issues within the military today is every new, when you get a game changing new technology, it's not just what you're gonna buy, it's your doctrine, how you're gonna use it, how you're gonna train around it, how you're gonna organize around it. And so you know, we can pose this question, and I pose it sometimes to military audience, do you think this is the same, are manned systems and unmanned systems the same? If they're the same, we don't have to change anything. If they're different, we need to change something. But what do we change? How do we change our training? How do we change our equipping? Do we allow them to be autonomous or not? Do we have them centralized control or do we distribute them across the force? Do we have them operate in a hub and spokes model, a mothership model? Or do we have them operate as swarms or wolf packs to make like a nature parallel? These are all questions to figure out. And you know the, why that's important is if we get this right, we figure out the 21st century version of the Blitzkrieg. If we get this wrong, we're setting the US military on the pay path of the 21st century version of the Maginot line. And to this the specific question that you ask is, you know, there are literally not just hundreds, but I would argue thousands of US servicemen and women who are alive today because of this technology. That's why it's not going away. Those powerful proof stories are inarguable. But as you put it, there's all these sort of questions of the best way to adopt to it. And um, the Switchblade is a great illustration of it. The Switchblade is a new concept crossed with an old concept. It's a drone, but a tiny drone. It's um, about the size of a rolled-up magazine. And you, a small unit can carry it in their backpack rather than a big thing like a predator. And they can fire it, and it f- takes off and flies. And then, if they see a bad guy, like Aldit, um, there's a bad guy on that building over there, we've detected him without having to rely on people hundreds of miles away to let us know about it, we can then convert the switchblade into a robotic kamikaze. And it'll just fly into that bad guy and it'll blow them up because it carries explosives. This is really powerful. What it does is it gives a small unit, uh, uh, enlisted men, basically the equivalent of a small cruise missile. And that's why they love the concept. That's exactly why senior officers hate the concept. Because they go, hold it. Does he put it, you know, do, Are they going to be responsible enough with this system? Do they have the right training with this system? And that's a particular concern you hear from the Air Force. Is, um, it's not just... Uh, being a pilot is not just about controlling the joystick, even though that's what we've measured ourselves on. That's what our identity is from. What matters may be also... All of that training an officer gets in Air War College or the like. And so there's a real back and forth on that. But the problem for those making the argument is that the aviator field has traditionally measured itself by their technical skill set, not by these dilemmas. You know, If you ever read the bio of a senior um, Air Force officer, it's how many flight hours is in their bio. A senior Navy aviator, it's how many carrier deck landings. Whereas what, mat- what may matter more may be that human thing that robots can't match, you know, the, the intellect and the heart to figure out you know, what's right or wrong. Um, uh, just right here in the front. Can you uh, talk a little bit about domestic deployment of drones and what they might be, what the planned uses are? Or are they armed? So... Domestic uses of um, unmanned aerial system. It's, it's taken off in a, a huge amount in the news recently. Um, you know, I've been part of that discussion, but the problem is there's been a lot of uh, myth and hysteria layered on top of it, of, on top of really, really deep concerns. So the current rules today are that if you want to operate a robotic system in the air, you can, as long as it doesn't go above 400 feet and you don't operate it near you know, an airport or the like. If you wanna be able to operate it above 400 feet, it has to be something that you get a special license for. And you also can't use it for commercial reasons. And um, despite that, we've seen a blossoming of different roles sometimes for commercial reasons. And so we've seen everything of these smaller scale systems uh, you know, from do-it-yourself builders, and there's more than 10,000 people you know, using these homemade quadcopter kits, to um, people using them for commercial reasons. Uh, everything from, uh, uh, LA Times had a story about a um, photographer for real estate agents you know, So you look online, you're about, to buy a, you're about to buy a house in LA or in Aspen, and you get the pictures in the rooms, but wouldn't it be neat if you could get an overhead picture of the entire landscape? Or you could get the picture of what it's like to walk through that room, so why don't we instead fly a little quadcopter through the room? And so there was a story about that usage. To invite news organizations using it to, after there was a big flood in North Dakota, Let's fly our own camcopter over it and figure out, you know, get picture of that to people using it for disaster response after Hurricane Katrina. Lots of different usages of this. There's actually a marine system that you saw there that started out being used by tuna fishermen to find where the tuna were. And the marine said, wow, that's useful. Why don't we use it? It's their main um, system in Afghanistan today. The change, though, is above the 400 feet. And you need a special license for it right now. The special licenses have only gone to a limited set. A couple of police departments like Miami-Dade to this little dink police department in um, Mississippi to uh, environmental survey operations in Alaska. But you know, we're talking under 100 special licenses. In 2015 though, Congress has told the FAA, and let me be clear, Congress told it without any debate about this part of it. It was part of the FAA budget authorization the people in Congress concerned with privacy had no clue about it. They basically said, FAA, figure out how to make it happen by 2015 to open up the overall airspace. And that's the game changer because then suddenly people can operate it at lots of different levels for lots of different usages. That of course opens up lots of different privacy concerns, be it in police hands. I remember speaking with a um, federal district court judge who said this will be a Supreme Court case because it applies to areas like um, probable cause, where flying overhead, you're gonna pick up a lot of things and you're gonna have to figure out when and where does a search warrant apply um, to privacy in terms of paparazzi usages of this system. Armed side, we haven't seen that in actual armed systems, although there was, um, you would be surprised which state uh, this happened, a um, sheriff's department that bought a version of a quadcopter that was armed, you could arm it with shotguns, but they just put non-lethal weapon systems on it. Um, so there's that potential. I don't think that's where we're going because we, police helicopters don't operate armed normally. I wouldn't see the same thing happening with drones. But we have, let's move to gro- ground robotics. We do have questions of, do I have a right to bear robotic arms? Um, a owner of a bar In Atlanta, there was a group of um, homeless who gathered, just like here, on the other side of the street from the bar. He didn't like it, thought it was bad for business. He didn't want to personally confront them, so he built what he called Bumbot, which basically was a ground robotic armed with a water cannon that he sent out to chase the homeless away. Was that his right to do or not? We could argue back and forth to thinking about home defense, et cetera, et cetera. Big, big questions coming out of this. The point I make is, you know, the computer back in 1980 didn't seem like it would be an issue that would, a a technology that caused all sorts of legal issues, and yet a huge number of Supreme Court cases have connected to computers. We'll see the same thing with robotics. Um, uh, Just right there. Um, Wait for the mic for folks. Yeah. uh, Given the volume of uh, countries that have some sort of robotics and given... The velocity of development of technology. I realize I'm asking you to speculate, but how long do you think it will be before truly we'll have a, a war between enemies that is essentially robot against robot? It's a really great question, and um, people often, and it was funny. It happens at literally one of the panels here at Aspen. They then go, they then make the sci fi reference. There's a, a Star Trek episode where that exactly happens, where they basically have advanced to a point that just the machines fight, and then the t- people from the two cultures line up, and, and the computer spits out how many people would die, and they accept their deaths instead of all the destruction of war. And Kirk, of course, is just thinks this is the most horrible thing and destroys the system to leave them back to the good old-fashioned ways of war. Um, I don't think that will happen anytime soon because at the end of the day, this is a technology that um, still connects to us, still connects to humans. And we're seeing not complete replacement of um, military units, but more a mixing of manned and unmanned. Where I think it's headed is more towards um, uh, what we call in in the field warfighters associates. The parallel to this would be um, a policeman with a police dog. The team is better than each of them on their own. Humans doing what they're good at, robots doing what they're doing at, but the team together. Or a sports parallel would be a quarterback and the wide receivers. The human being the quarterback. The quarterback calls a play. The wide receivers carry out the play, but we give the wide receivers autonomy so that they don't just blindly follow the play. If things change, if they think the quarterback's about to be sacked, they can turn around and come back or the like. And I think we'll do the same with our robotic systems where we say, here's the place for you to follow, but we're gonna allow them to come back. Another reason why I don't see complete replacement is of course their vulnerabilities in these technologies. Some of the vulnerabilities are high-tech ones like I mentioned in cyber, but also a lot of war today is messy. It's, it's um, insurgency, uh, warlords, urban. And so you're seeing um, uh, low-end responses to robotics. Uh, one, for example, is in Iraq. The insurgents studied our ground robots and figured out the exact angle that they could crawl out of a ditch and the angle that they couldn't. And so they dug ditches, tiger traps, an old technology that actually was used in Vietnam as well by the Viet Cong to capture our ground robots and a couple times then used them against us. Or they were really, really um, mean in one way. They figured out the exact height of the arm of one ground robot of what it could reach and then they would put the IED a half an inch above that. And so you'd see the, the American robot just trying to reach at it. And, you know, of course, they could have put it a foot above, but they put it a half inch above the kind of a psychology back at the Americans. I mean, this is all we're talking about technology, but it was a psychology to say, we're learning and we'll get back. We don't need robots to, to figure out. So you're going to see this back and forth and back and forth. I mean, the, the way I would say it is you get the tank, but it doesn't mean you got rid of all these other technologies out there in war. Robotics, though, is um, definitely, you know, a, a game changer. Okay, we've got time, I think that's our, our we're getting the, the end sign, so um, uh, I will follow my orders here like a good robot, and thank you all for coming out. Thank you. So much. Oh, really thank you. I, I actually work at the Singularity University, and I oh,